my wife and I have a spiritual daughter, Chris, uh, Dr. Chris Saunders. She works in the ER at a large children's hospital. Every now and again, Chris will call uh, late in the night into the early morning hours, and she's crying. She's crying over the wickedness she has to observe in the emergency room. And it is an honor to weep with her in those times. And with her permission, we're going to allow you to join us for a time of grieving here for just a moment. Grieving about wickedness. Let me read to you a letter that Chris wrote after a particularly rough shift. This was this last summer. She wrote and said this, I love my job. I really do. My job utilizes my knowledge and my skills in unique ways every day, and I'm good at my job. I'm not trying to brag, but it's true. God has given me the ability to think quickly in stressful situations, to react calmly, to compartmentalize my job away from my emotions in the heat of the moment, and then to laugh and cry and recover and get ready to do it all again. But some days suck. They just do. You get struck in the face with the evilness of this world. Some days at work, you get struck over and over by the wickedness of the world. Days like today. Call comes over the radio from an ambulance bringing a kid in from a really bad car wreck. I can tell from the radio call the EMTs are stressed. They're local, so there's not much time to prepare. The patient gets here and is in really bad shape. I can see right away this is not a survivable injury. I won't go into details. In spite of the bleak outlook, we do everything we can, but all of our efforts did not help her. We don't even know this girl's name. Afterwards, the police give us more information. The unknown girl died because her dad and his drug-dealing friend were racing 100-plus miles an hour down a regular city street with the daughter in the car. The car was ripped literally in half. Both drivers had injuries but survived. A girl died because her dad was an idiot. Same song, second verse. A little bit younger, a little bit worse. A six-year-old boy comes in with chief complaint of homicidal and suicidal thoughts. Six years old! A few months before, a man beat his mom to death in front of him. Today, the boy freaked out, understandably, because he saw the same man in the store. Six-year-old boy is scarred for life because some man is filled with evil. And this was just on top of the regular problems we see every day, just like you do, Jen. The rest of today's trauma, 13-year-old girl overdoses and tries to kill herself because she feels like she has no friends. Toddler beaten up because he wet the bed. Teenager fakes a seizure because it's the only way he can get any attention at home. Some poor kid who just gets sicker and sicker because mom is so abrasive, angry, and threatening to the staff that she makes it difficult to actually treat the kid. I ache, Lord, she finished. Now, many of you relate because of what you see in your jobs. You veterans and nurses and paramedics and policemen, et cetera, et cetera, you've all seen the ugly underbelly of humanity. And, of course, all of us witness the wickedness of life, right? I mean, you don't have to be a policeman or an ER doctor to, to see evil. And when we see evil, whether it's in ourselves or in others, when we see evil, it makes us ache, right? That's how it hits us. Wickedness makes us ache. And this is especially true for all of you people who are redeemed through faith in Messiah Jesus. You especially ache. Have you ever thought about why? Why is that so? Why do we ache over evil? I think the main answer is that we ultimately don't belong in this situation. As we put it in your notes, um, you got a worship guide when you came and open it up. Look on the left-hand side, you'll see this headline. God's people are aliens. We aren't comfortable with wickedness because this isn't our true home. Do you know, what, you know what aching over wickedness is? Aching over wickedness is actually a form of homesickness. 
That's what it is. If you consider yourself a Texan, raise your hand. Consider yourself a Texan, raise your hand. All right? Now, keep your hand up if you've ever had to live somewhere else besides Texas. All right? Where, where, where did you have to live? Maryland. Where did you have to live? Hawaii. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> I, that's really sad. Give me another one. Where? California. California. All right. Now, it, it, all those things, all those places are great. Those of you who had to live somewhere besides Texas, did you ever find that there were things that made life just harder there? Did you ever find yourself sighing for good Tex-Mex food, right? Did you ever find yourself wishing that you could just see some pictures on your newsfeed of children having their photo taken in fields of blue bonnets, right? I remember moving to Germany and I walked down the street and said howdy to people just like we do in Texas. I thought they were going to lock me up. I'm not kidding. They looked at me like I was a stormtrooper on indoor. It was, it was horrifying. Now, Maryland and California and Hawaii and New York and all those other places, Germany, those are great. But since your blood is Texan, you never fully feel at home there, right? In a somewhat similar fashion. Believers in, in Jesus have heaven in our blood. We, we are reborn for a different country. Our heavenly home is perfect, like, like great Tex-Mex food. Um, seriously, our home country is ideal. Therefore, while we enjoy many grand things about life on earth, many wonderful things about life on earth, we never fully feel at home in this imperfect world. Open your Bible to Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29. Let's examine Solomon's wisdom about how God's people are aliens on this wicked planet. Proverbs 29, go to verse 6, if you would. An evil man is caught by sin, but the righteous one sings and rejoices. Verse 6 is one of those very rare places where the translators befuddle me. Let, let me break it down for you. Now, everyone agrees with the first half of this antithetical proverb. Wickedness, the first half, does not really get away with anything. Evil is always a snare that universally and eventually traps Everyone who practices sin, right? This is what Edgar Allan Poe was describing in a number of his poems and his famous story, The, the Telltale Heart. Dum, 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 dum. The person who practices iniquity only traps himself. The second part of this proverb is what makes me scratch my head. Most English Bibles say that instead of being trapped, the first part, the righteous person, second part, sings and rejoices. Now, the Hebrew word we render sing is runon. Runon just means, it, here's all it means. It means a strong, guttural sound from the throat. It's utilized two main ways in the Bible. It can describe a groan from a person who is aching or a song from a happy soul. But get this. Every other time runon is employed the way it is here. It's employed here as an imperfect verb. Every other time it's employed as an imperfect verb, the translators make the English Bible read groan or moan or whimper. Why not do so here? I think it's because they assume Solomon is linking runon with the next noun, which clearly means rejoice. And to my minimally educated eye, that seems like a mistake. The righteous do rejoice, but they also ache. They both ache and rejoice. Look at this. The Hebrew term for rejoice, also really important. Samach. Samach is used in a number of Semitic languages for spontaneous rejoicing, for, for delighting over something wonderful like great Tex-Mex food. Um, but, but wait, there's more. There's more to it. Samach carries another meaning. Now, this meaning 
not picking on any translators, this meaning is actually impossible to replicate in more refined languages uh, like English. It can't be done. It, it means to rejoice, but it also means to grow, to, to naturally and inevitably break through the, the soil, reaching past the earth. It's, it's a word that's used for plants, breaking through the soil as they grow. Do, do you see? Look at this amazing thing Solomon is saying. We, we rejoice because we know this earth is not our ending home. Those who trust Yahweh's provision aren't going to be caught and held under by sin. That's why they rejoice. A few years ago, theologian Daniel Motley uh, wrote this about this passage. He said, C.S. Lewis identified this feeling with the idea of Sehnsucht. Uh, Sehnsucht is a German word meaning longing or desire. Sehnsucht appeared in many of Lewis's favorite works of literature, including Norse mythology, the poems of Wordsworth, and the children's stories of George MacDonald. It was, and here's a quote from C.S. Lewis, that unnameable something, desire for which pierces us like a rapier at the smell of a bonfire, the sound of wild ducks flying overhead, the title of the well at the world's end, the opening lines of Kublai Khan, the morning cobwebs in late summer, or the noise of falling waves, close quote. We rejoice because of Sehnsucht. We rejoice because we can feel that God made us to grow up past the, the snares of this earth. All God's people said? And we rejoice that those who do evil, look at the first part, those who do evil trap themselves. We rejoice that we can, by God's grace alone, move past evil ourselves. But we also ache. I really think this text is saying both. Even as we rejoice over growth, we whimper over the horrible effects of sin. We moan over lives destroyed, including the life of the perpetrator. It's, it's all a mixed bag. It's like being an expat. It, it really is. There was so much I loved about living in Germany. J just take the food. The chocolate and the bakeries were amazing, absolutely amazing. But the lack of real ribs, ugh, the lack of Tex-Mex food, the lack of free refills on drinks, it made me long for home, right? I, I both rejoiced and I groaned about life there. Now, look at verse 8. Mockers inflame a city. You're still in Proverbs 29. Mockers inflame a city, but the wise turn away in anger, or turn away anger. If a wise man goes to court with a fool, they'll be ranting and raving, but no resolution. Bloodthirsty men hate an honest person, but the upright care about him. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man holds it in check. The righteous are hated because they bring order. The, the, I want you to look at this. The parallelism of those four verses makes it very clear what Solomon's saying. I want you to look here. There are two big ideas, okay? Two big ideas. We'll call them idea A and idea B. Idea A, mockers create havoc, the wise restore order. That's verse 8. Parallel in verse 10. Violent men hate the good. The just seek justice for them, verse 10, okay? So we start with, with what wickedness does and how the wise restore order. Wickedness does, the wise restore order. Now, idea B. The wise, we start with the wise, have decorum at court, at court. fools do not. And then verse 11, the parallel. The wise have self-control, fools do not. Order and justice. That's what wise people bring. Havoc and hatred. That's what mocking fools create. And, and catch the why. The, the reasons given to us for all this havoc and hatred, look at, look at verse 11. The wise have self-control, fools do not. 
Okay? The evil people spawn hatred. They spawn havoc because they lack self-control. Look, look at verse 9. They can't even keep decorum at court. Dwayne Garrett explains this really nicely. I like the quote so much I put it in your notes. Uh, take a look. Dr. Garrett says, These proverbs describe how unprincipled people try to turn society upside down. They inflame others. That's verse 8. They're not averse to resorting to violence, verse 10. The wise, however, restore order to the streets and the justice system. The, verse 10b should be translated, but the upright avenge him, the man of integrity who is abused. The point here, as in verse 8, is that the just set things right, close quote. That's why good people are hated. It's why integrous leaders get attacked in the public square and in private, because the order they bring is a threat to people who love lawlessness. Verse 27 explains further how the righteous are hated. They're hated because their values are different. Look at verse 27. An unjust man is detestable to the righteous, and the one who is upright is detestable to the wicked. The people who trust Yahweh are upright and honest. You see that? The opposite is to be unjust and not upright, that is, dishonest. This is an unavoidable dichotomy. Unjust, dishonest people are disgusted by holiness. Crookedness is detestable to an upright person, and the divide is inevitable. In fact, it is right and good. We who are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit are meant to be repulsed by cheating. If we aren't, then we must seriously question why. If I'm not bothered by evil, I need to ask why. Solomon implies this is binary. If I'm not horrified over dishonesty and injustice, then I'm not living out who I'm supposed to be, supposed to be as a person made righteous by God. Or turn it around, look at, look at it like this. If I don't get spat upon because of my commitment to justice and truth, then I, then I must not be living out loud who I really am. Jesus grabbed this thread. He wanted to make certain that that we understand the righteous are those who follow him. So Luke chapter 6, he declares this. Take a look. Luke 6, starting in 22. You are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite word for himself. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. Now look at that and think. Notice that God says nothing about my party politics, right? If I'm getting detestable mail because of my party, there's no reward there. He says nothing about economics or the twisted isms that drive our days. Jesus declares when, that is, we will be hated because we follow him. We will be excluded if we live out his values. It's not an if. It's a when. Peter adds this final cap, biblical thread, all the way through to one of the last books of the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. Until Jesus returns on the day of visitation, people aren't going to get it, okay? Just listen, they're going to see your righteousness as oppressive. They are. They're going to see your holiness as strange. They will laugh at you. They will alienate you 
because you dare to live God's values. Because sadly, God's values are rather often rejected. They're especially usually rejected through all eras by smug people who are convinced of their own morality. And as a result, wickedness just spreads and spreads all over the planet. So, consider the question atop the right side of our notes. Right side of your notes. What should we do when wickedness spreads? When wickedness spreads, what should we do? Should we just close our eyes to all the pain, pretend it's not there, click our heels together, and in our Dorothy of Kansas voice say, there's no place like home. Click, click. There's no place like home. Click, click. Is that what we're supposed to do? Interestingly, that is nowhere on God's activity list. Doesn't appear. God instead gives us five activities that really do make all the difference in handling wickedness. Hezekiah's collection, uh, what we call Proverbs 25 through 29, Hezekiah's collection of Solomon gives us five commands, five brilliant commands that apply to every one of our lives. Commands about how to handle the spread of wickedness. The first one is beware. Open your eyes. Be alert. Proverbs 29, verse 2. When the righteous flourish, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, people do what, everybody? Groan. They groan, right? They groan. Don't underestimate the ripple effect of evil. Paul Bia is the president of Cameroon. He can much more often be seen in Geneva, Switzerland than in Cameroon because his favorite retreat in the world is the Intercontinental Hotel on Lake Geneva. The African nation president, Mr. Bia, has ruled his country since 1975, elected every time since then, and he spends months every year in Geneva, Switzerland. He takes over an entire floor when he and his wife arrive. They pay in cash. They bring bags of euros, plastic bags full of euros, millions of euros they bring. Most international economists assume and probably rightly think that the money is in cash so that it can't be traced. A few forensic economists have published some papers that uh, do a pretty good job of showing that the money is being taken directly from the security funds, the security forces funds of Cameroon, of the home country, and it's being used for the president to stay at a hotel in Geneva. But you know what? The people don't really care. It doesn't seem important to them if one person is being wicked. In what appear to be fair elections last month, just last month, and the elections appear to have been clean, Mr. Bia was elected to another seven-year term, even though he is now 83 years old. When asked about President Bia's use of the country's money, most people seem to agree with this guy. It's just one quote I grabbed. Issa Bakari Roma said, We love him. We voted for him, and there is nothing new in his habits. So what if he wants to be wicked, they think? Until last week an Islamist group crossed the border from Nigeria and broke into a Cameroonian Christian boarding school. Facing almost no police or security presence at all, they kidnapped 79 students. Just a few days ago, a Christian missionary in Yaoundé was, uh, was killed in crossfire. There were a bunch of English-speaking people who were mad about French-speaking people, and they were shooting at each other, and there were no police to stop it. And this missionary tried and was killed. You still think it doesn't matter when a leader is corrupt? So what if they want to spend money wickedly? Folks, listen. The ripple effect of evil is monstrous, and it always corrupts the entire ecosystem. Always. 
Flip over a page to chapter 28. Let's read some related Proverbs. Um, we're going to leave 29. We'll spend the rest of our time in 28. So go back a page to 28, and let's read 12, 15, and 28. Okay? Proverbs 28, verse 12. When the righteous triumph, there's great rejoicing. But when the wicked come to power, people hide themselves. Verse 15. A wicked ruler over a helpless people is like a roaring lion or a charging bear. Verse 28. When the wicked come to power, people hide. But when they're destroyed, the righteous flourish. Don't underestimate the ripple effect of evil. A hundred years ago today, on the 11th hour of the 11th month of the 11th day, the Great War ended, taking nothing away from the Veterans Day that we now celebrate in America. I think it is important to remember this started as Armistice Day. It was a day to celebrate the fact that there could be an armistice, there could be a stopping of the battle. But there is no Armistice Day against evil. Unlike the Huns, evil never stops. If you try to compromise with wickedness, you are only going to help it along. Do not misgauge its power. That's why the next command is don't abet evil. Don't, don't help evil. Uh, stay there in chapter 28. Look at verse 9. Anyone who turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is detestable. Now add in verse 17. A man burdened by blood guilt will be a fugitive until death. Let no one help him. Wickedness is spreading, but don't you join in. The person who rejects the law, especially about life, will be rejected by God and eventually rejected by people. Proverbs 29, 24 contributes this uh, idea. To be a thief's partner is to hate oneself. He hears the curse but will not testify. Uh, now, let me, let me explain a little background here. Curse, you see curse in that verse? This is shorthand for the justice that occurred before the elders in the village gate of a, of a Hebrew village. Okay, the elders would gather in the village gate. There would be a trial. Someone's accused of, of stealing in this situation. Witnesses were called, and all the witnesses were put under oath. And under oath, they were told that there is a spiritual curse from God that falls on anyone who lies. Proverbs comments on this. Uh, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, right? But look at this person. He aids evil. He knows his friend has stolen, but he won't tell the truth there in the village gate. He doesn't only hate the, the victims of his partner's crimes. This guy hates himself. He takes God's curse just to help a thief. Possibly the most famous example of this in all of literature is Gollum. 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 Right? Tolkien's tragic character is burdened by blood guilt, right? He's ensnared. He's rejected by elves and men and dwarves. His prayers are rejected. He lives as a fugitive forever. He is cursed in a dark, wet, cold place. Do you want to be like Gollum? Yes or no? No. Well, then hear the law and do what's right. Don't abet evil. Don't facilitate sin, even if it's your partner. Even if it's your family, don't help people do wickedness. Slide up to verses uh, 4 through 6. Chapter 28, 4 through 6. This is God's third command right here. How do we handle the spread of wickedness? Right here, verse 4. Those who reject the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law battle against them. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand everything. Better a poor man who lives with integrity than a rich man who distorts right and wrong. What can one do when wickedness spreads? Keep battling. Poss possibly a better way to summarize would be this. Keep battling for clarity of vision found in Yahweh. 
Keep battling for clarity of vision found in Yahweh so that you can stay in the fight. Do you, do you ever just feel defeated? I mean, do, do your senses just tell you the gig is up? There's no, there's no hope standing against evil. People are just going to keep misunderstanding justice so badly that what they call just is actually perverted, right? Do you ever feel that way? That, that, that even if you convince one person of God's truth, three more are just going to praise the wicked more loudly. Battling evil, battling evil, however you do it, and I don't want to give you specifics. The Holy Spirit will show you the specifics of how each of us needs to battle evil. But battling evil, you need to know, is a little bit like parenting a toddler, okay? You just have to keep repeating the same instruction over and over, the same messes, the same chastisements, hour after hour. It is very easy to lose sight of the big picture. With a child, you lose sight of God's promised blessing and shepherding a child. But we mustn't despair. Don't settle for short-term thinking like, like earthly riches. Don't sell out. Battle on! I think, I think this guy, uh, Harry Gregson Williams, I think he... I think he composed the perfect piece of music for this idea. Harry is the guy that scored the uh, movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, based on the C.S. Lewis book. Here's the scene that Harry was given. Look at this. Now, this was his scene. Peter and the free Narnians think that the war is now hopeless. They're in a war against evil, real evil. They think it's hopeless now that Aslan is dead. If you don't know him, Aslan was the great lion. He was the son of the emperor over the sea, but he died to save a human traitor. But, with, but without a living Aslan, the free Narnians feel hopeless. They just feel hopeless. But, they told this scorer of this music, this composer, you need to capture music that shows that hopelessness, but it also shows how in the story they battle on for truth regardless. Now, I want to play you what he came up with. I don't want to show you any video because I want you to really concentrate on the audio. Listen to what he crafted. Here you go. Do you, do you hear the darkness? Do you, do you feel the defeat? lighter note, heavier brass determination, determination to still fight. spreads keep fighting especially in your own soul keep fighting God has a fourth commission for us it's found in 28 13 look at verse 13 the one who conceals his sins will not prosper but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy remember wickedness is the enemy not any person as we as we summarize in our notes hold forth the mercy of God 
This has two powerfully and critically important applications. The first is that even as we battle evil, we must remind every single person who may be dabbling in evil and sin, we must remind them that God provides mercy for every single sinner who turns to Him in repentance. Do not hate sin so much that you start hating sinners. God shows through all the Bible, culminating in the Messiah, whom we'll discuss more in a moment, that He longs for all people who sin. And all people do to confess their sin and find mercy in Yahweh. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. The second application is to my own soul. It's to our own souls. Even, even a person who is redeemed by faith and covered in God's imputed righteousness sins, right? If I conceal my sin, look at the, look at the text. Here, look at it again. If I conceal my sin, I will not prosper. I, even as a Christian, have to take my evil and turn to God for mercy. Our daughter Chris addressed this at the end of that letter. Remember the letter I read earlier that she wrote? This is how she ended that letter. Chris wrote this. She says, some days it's easy to think, I am such a better human than these losers. Some days it's difficult to remember and more difficult to truthfully comprehend that the Jesus who died on the cross for my own sins died for each one of these people too. Some days I sit in my own Jonah-like sin and I don't want those people to live long enough to be shown grace because some days just suck. But there, except for the grace of God, go I. I must swallow the hard pill that I'm not doing these same wicked things only because of the grace of God in my life. Close quote. Amen? When wickedness is spreading, be alert. Notice it. Don't help it. Keep battling. Hold forth mercy. And number five, remember the end of the story. That's what we learn in a slew of comments. Uh, Proverbs 28, we'll start in verse 1. The wicked flee when no one's pursuing them, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Verse 7, a discerning son keeps the law, but a companion of gluttons humiliates his father. Verse 8, whoever increases his wealth through excessive interest collects it for one who is kind to the poor. Verse 10, the one who leads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit what is good. Verse 14, happy is the one who is always reverent, but the one who hardens his heart falls into trouble. Verse 16, a leader who lacks understanding is very oppressive, but one who hates dishonest profit prolongs his life. Verse 18, the one who lives with integrity will be helped. But the one who distorts right and wrong will suddenly fall. 29, uh, our very last verse, 29, 16 adds this. When the wicked increase, rebellion increases, but the righteous will see their downfall. In case you don't know, Aslan, the uh, Messiah figure in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe story that we heard the music from, Aslan's actually very much alive. Um, Peter and the Free Narnians don't know it. But Aslan is actually resurrected, and he is just about to arrive with, with all the help needed to set everything straight. In the same way, God's spiritually free peoples can be bold as a lion, because even though it doesn't feel like it, we know that our Savior is alive. We know the end of the story. He tells it to us right here. Look, look, look at what he said. Just look at the negative part of those Proverbs we read. Verse 1, the wicked live in fear. Well, that's because every conscience eventually awakes. At some point, every conscience awakes. Verse 7, wastrels humiliate their families. Verse 8, cheaters have everything taken away from them and redistributed. 
Verse 10, false leaders ensnare themselves. Verse 14, the hard-hearted people, they fall into trouble. Verse 16, the, the oppressive people lack understanding. That it, it's, it, it's wisdom. They lack skillful living. Uh, distorters of right and wrong, boy, you, those drive you crazy, don't they? Trust me, they, they will suddenly fall. And 29.16, evil's doom is certain. Do you see that? The end of the story is already written. Those who reject God's resurrected Messiah are doomed. Those who are committed to evil will fall. With that in mind, with that in mind, let me just address one tragic thing about modern Christianity. Okay, just one thing real quickly. I think this is important. Look at that summary list and ask yourself this. Am I doing anyone a favor when I pretend that sin has no consequence? Am I doing, is it love, is it real love for me to pretend that whatever your favorite sin is that's described as sin in the Bible, it's really okay? Am I doing you a favor then, yes or no? In fact, the only conclusion you can reach is I must hate you. That's evil. Our forefathers were very wise. They refused to whitewash the negative outcome of the wicked. Teachers like Jonathan Edwards were not perfect, but they cared enough about people to speak the truth about sin. Friends, we are all wicked and, and not in a good way. Each of us has sin. It taints us. It separates us from holy God. But God loves people so much that he gave Jesus, his own son, as the Messiah sacrifice. Jesus died and he was resurrected so that anyone who trusts in him is rescued no matter how wicked we are. C.S. Lewis is the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe beautifully relates this. I want to show you a scene from the film. Here's Aslan's resurrection. Take a look. knew the true meaning of sacrifice. She might have interpreted the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack, and even death itself would turn backwards. We sent the news that you were dead. 
Peter and Edmund will have gone to war. We have to help them. We will, dear one. But not alone. Climb on my back. We have far to go, and little time to get there. And you may want to cover your ears. Awesome. I've seen that 78 times, and I still get chills every single time. And by the way, in, in Jesus' kingdom, his physical kingdom, I, I have put in already a, a request that I get to ride on Aslan's back. I, I, I think it'd be awesome. Folks, Jesus is, is alive. He is resurrected. And because of that, the believer in Jesus is made righteous. We are carried on Jesus' back. By God's grace, the Christian can live out the other side of our Proverbs we read. Look, look, look at the other side, uh, 28.1. They could be bold as a lion. Verse 7, discerning. 8, kind to the poor. Blameless, inheriting good. Blessed, 16, honest. They can be helped. 29.16, they will be around to see the end of wickedness. Would you, would you like to see those traits in your life? Would you like to avoid the certain doom that is the end of the wicked? Would you? Well, then, then pray with me to trust the resurrected Jesus. Let's pray. Pray with me. Father, I pray for anyone who is studying with me that has not trusted Jesus as Savior. I pray you, you draw them to you right now. Oh, Lord, they may think that they're good, and, and by our measure, oh, they may be wonderful people, but they're still sinful. It's a fact, and thus they're separated from you. Lord, they may, they may think that they're so horrible that your, your sacrifice wasn't enough. I mean, they probably wouldn't put it that way, but they're just too terrible for you to ever really want them. Lord, let them see that you died in a traitor's stead because you love every one of us. You hold forth the mercy of God. Friend, listen. Wherever you are in your thoughts, in your life development, you were meant to grow past this earth. You were meant for more. God loves you so much that he made a way. Trust Jesus right now. He died for you on the cross and rose from the dead. If you believe on him, you have everlasting life. Put your life on him right now. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. Look up at me. Give me eye contact. I want to rejoice with you. Just you and me. Look at me. Super. Father, I pray for these believers in Jesus. I ask you to encourage every one of them. Deepen us so that we begin to understand your truth, your deeper magic in your scripture. It changes everything. In Jesus' name, amen.